Little Ferry, New Jersey, July 1937. It was one of the worst heat waves Bergen County had ever experienced. Daytime temperatures swelled to an average of 100 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 38 degrees Celsius for everyone else in the world, and the nights weren't much better. We typically associate the film industry with Hollywood or Los Angeles, but American cinema actually started in the New York metropolitan area. The reasons for the shift to California are numerous, with many studios eventually heading west partially because of California's geological diversity, which presented a variety of natural backdrops for films. Many of the first studios were centered around New York and Thomas Edison's resident state of New Jersey. And that's where our story starts. Robert Davison was on the way back home from a nightly run. A truck driver, he often worked very late, odd hours. So when he saw the flames coming from 20th Century Fox's storage facility, it's entirely possible that he thought he was hallucinating. But the inferno that would soon envelop the vaults of Fox's film warehouses was no mirage. Davison acted fast, pulled over, and located an alarm box on the side of the road. With firehouses alerted, the driver rushed to awaken the nearby residents, some of whom, shaken by the commotion and heat from the flames, were already up and alerting their other neighbors. The flames rose over a hundred feet high and enveloped nearby residences. Anna Greaves and her sons, John and Charles, were three unfortunate souls who got caught in the blaze, though all but 13-year-old Charles survived. A platoon of firefighters from several surrounding counties converged on the scene. 150 men strong and 14 fire houses between them, they fought the fire until the early hours of the morning. By dawn's light, it was finally out, but it left behind charred ruins and damages equaling over $200,000. Though both property and lives were lost that night, nothing could compare to the greater loss that was realized that morning. It was soon discovered that the cause of the fire stemmed from the intense heat setting off a chemical reaction with the film stored inside the vaults. Silver nitrate, as we'll come to learn, is highly unstable and extraordinarily flammable. And inside the Fox warehouse was over 40,000 reels of negatives and film prints to help feed the inferno. Over the next few days, 57 trucks hauled all of the silver that could be salvaged from the wreckage. For its value, Fox News only got $2,000. And when all was said and done, officials at 20th Century Fox merely shrugged their shoulders, accepted their losses, and sniffed that only old films were destroyed. Only years later would it fully sink in what happened in New Jersey that night was the cinematic equivalent to the burning of the library at Alexandria. Uh, hey everybody, this is a very special episode of Relic with a very special guest, Robert Jenner of the Fan Film Boys podcast. Thanks for having me on. I'm uh, very excited to be here and it's uh, been something I've been looking forward to for the, the whole week. 
Yeah, me me too. Um, and I am your very special host, Maxwell. So uh, just uh, letting everyone know that this episode that we're recording is going to be a little bit different format-wise than our previous ones. So if you're tuning in for the first time, you might want to start with an earlier episode because this is really indicative of the Relic MO. But if you like what you're hearing, then who cares? Keep listening. Uh, also, we will be going back to our usual format next week for those who are like, what the heck is this? I may sprinkle an episode like this in every now and then just to shake up things up a little because it's fun. It's kind of helps me break up like having to do scripts every week. It's nice to talk to other podcasters, which is honestly why I'm really thrilled to do this. Um, but anyways, so Robert, the reason I wanted to do an episode like this is because you've been helping me research since like episode five. And you've been awesome. But I wanted to do something special since last week we passed our cumulative thousandth episode download. And I don't really have a barometer if that's good or not after being out for like about two months. Um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled. People are listening, I guess. So um, yeah. So today we're going to be talking about A Lost Treasure, multiple and those are the lost films of Hollywood and a greater extent, the film industry as a whole. And there's a reason we're doing this because you have a podcast and it's all about movies. Want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, excellent. Um, well, my uh, podcast is called The Fan Film Voice. Uh, I do it with my host, uh, co-host Michael. And uh, we're a couple of friends. We work together and we just decided one day that we wanted to do a podcast. Uh, we've always kind of had an idea of kind of what we were thinking of wanting to do. Uh, fan films was actually not one of those things. Um, but then one day we just started looking and got caught in this rabbit hole of YouTube, looking at some fan films and getting the ideas. And then we, when we did the research and found out nobody does a podcast based on fan films, we thought, well, that's our hole. So that's where we went. <laughs> so we've, uh, we've released about 21 uh, shows ourselves. Uh, we've had a lot of great uh, guests in in the time that we've been doing it we've had a lot of great screenwriters actors a couple right. of directors talked about a lot of amazing films a couple of bad films but in general <laughs> it's been a lot of fun yeah i've i've heard some episodes are uh, here of of your um podcast it's it's good it um it shines a light on a medium that's not really discussed uh i know people talk about fan fiction a lot but there's so much talent that goes into fan films and it's really impressive what people do with like a shoestring budget and it's really cool that you shine a light on that well it's, so it's one of those things if i can that that like you talk about fan fiction anybody can pick up a pen or use a computer and type something out it costs them absolutely nothing to do that but you talk about fan films these people are literally putting thousands of sometimes a lot more than that of their own money or Kickstarter money or something like that into something that they actually, at the other end, they can't make money off because they don't own the rights. They don't own anything that they can do. They can't make money off that that project. And some of these people, they do it for charity. Um, a good friend of ours, uh, Colin Costello, he's a screenwriter and producer and director out of, uh, out of Hollywood. Uh, he does it because he did it for some charity. He did one called Committed. It was about uh, Joker and Harley Quinn going to therapy couples therapy i love that idea uh, it, it, was, it it hasn't been released yet uh, we caught it because we were sponsors of of an award show and we got to see it but um he's going to be releasing it really soon it just won best fan film at geek uh geek coast in uh palm springs in california so oh, wow. yeah really good but they do it for that they use it as virtual 
business cards, you know, that sort of stuff to try and get into the industry more. So it's it's definitely something that's not got a lot of light shined on it. So we're, we're happy to help out. That's awesome. Um, so this episode is going to be on lost films. And I want to start out with something really riveting. I want to start out with a statistic. Um, and uh, if you know the answer to this, please just let just shout it out. But um, take a guess before 1950, how many films before 1950, since the beginning of like cinema, since like Edison, um, uh, oh gosh, Mil- oh shoot, the French guy. We'll just call him the French guy. Um, uh, Georges Méliès, I think. I maybe got that right. Um, then there was that guy who like vanished on like his train ride to mm-hmm. drop up. Um, you know about that one, I know. But um, take a guess, like what the percentages of films lost between 1950? Well, I actually. I kind of cheated on this. I, I got this yes. information as well. So um, it is, according to the Film Foundation, uh, which is Martin Scorsese's Film Foundation, he has estimated that 90% of American films made before 1929 are lost, and the Library of Congress estimates that 75% of all silent films that were ever made have been lost forever. It's insane, and there's kind of a reason for that. Um And that reason is that film, like early film stock, was made using silver nitrate, which turns out is an extremely unstable chemical substance that um, is so just weird in how it works that there are films made in 1896 that are flawless perfect you can still film them today we can we still have them you can still view them and it's amazing to look at really it is but um other films that were made much more recently by comparison basically the stuff turns into goop or turns into gunpowder or basically self-immolates itself and that's one of the reasons why that there's vast swaths of like silent film and film before the 50s um lost because there would be just these giant studio fires and like lot fires where the whole thing would go up in flames and not only that but before like video and this idea of syndication came out people uh destroyed film because they didn't think that there was a use for it it's what happened with doctor who and i hope to actually have an episode on that further down the line when the new season is about to come out um just they didn't see a use of a commercial benefit to keeping it around and it was just occupying so much space so they chucked the stuff yeah it's it's ridiculous how much it was just lost from just something like they just didn't feel like they had the space for it so they got rid of it it's like how much was lost just from oh we don't need that it was almost almost like um what is it inside out when they're walking through the the memory vault you know we'll, we'll keep the little jingle but we'll get rid of everything else yeah yeah um that's actually funny that was the first episode of um fan film boys that i heard was the one that was based off of uh inside, inside out, out with that was a good Riley's episode day. yeah yeah it was a good good place to start i guess um but it's it is heartbreaking and it sucks and people have gone through like great lengths and efforts to try to recover just whatever they can to salvage of these 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 lost films so um uh i think we should just kind of go in and just kind of spitball like the crazy i mean like there are some gems and there are some um not so much gems but interesting curios um here but um i think i want to start with kind of one of the earliest films which is not a hollywood film and i'm gonna i actually invite you to just immediately take over and like shut me down because you'll see why in a second i don't think 
of the two of us speaking right now, I am the most qualified to speak about this. But it is one of the earliest films in cinema, and it is called, you'll see you in a second, it's from 1906, it's called The Story of the Kelly Gang. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yep. Um, and I actually uh, discovered, like, footage of this, or what remains, um, when I was at... Uh, the Australian uh, Center for the uh, Moving Image. I probably butchered that. It's called Acme. It's in Melbourne. It's really cool. If I'm not sure if you've ever been there. I don't know. But um, it it's uh, basically, it depicts the story of uh, Ned Kelly, who was a notorious um, criminal, ranger. kind of like an... Hmm? He was a bush ranger. Bush ranger. Okay. Do you want to basically take over this? Because I feel like this is like... It's just kind of patron, almost like patronizing. Well, me, like, <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm not real familiar with the the, the film itself, but um, a little bit about uh, Ned Kelly. He was probably one of Australia's biggest bush rangers ever. We had a lot of them. Um, pretty much, we call him our own Robin Hood. I guess uh, used to be that he would steal from the the rich to give to the poor. Kept a lot more in his own pocket, of course. Um, he ended up. Uh, losing in a giant shootout uh to the police in melbourne and not in melbourne sorry but he lost in victoria sorry and it was in oh i, I hate to be this person I, it was in glen rowan yep, yep i think is what they yep, okay. glen rowan. all right and uh basically if you've ever been to outback that wonderfully tacky little Austra- uh, american Australian restaurant, whatever you want to call it. There's pictures of him on the walls everywhere. He, he was the one that <laughs> of he came out in the metal helmet, uh, the little slat in the middle, um, so he could see. He came out with his guns. Uh, this whole, you know, cast iron outfit that he was wearing, it, I, I think they did an estimate. It weighed close to like 200 pounds or something like that. It was just like huge and bulky, but he came out all guns firing. They ended up capturing him. Um, he was hung in Bogo Road Jail. Uh, I do know that one. And uh, his last words were, such is life. Oh, man. I hope my last words are that cool. They probably, they'll, <laughs> probably be, they'll probably be exceptionally whiny. Um, yeah, I would say, like, for our American listeners, it's, um, which is most people at this point, let's be real, um, it's, he's kind of comparative to Jesse James. But anyways, 26 years after he died, um, you know, silent film was a, starting to be a thing. People were experimenting with it. Um, and uh, there, silent film kind of was in short increments. Like there was like 10 minutes, five minutes. You really, there was no sense of like a long feature length narrative. The vines of the um, time. I'm sorry? The vines of the time. Yes, the, yeah, they were actually. Um, but uh, I guess... I didn't really get, uh, admittedly, I didn't do the best research on each film because I'm not great. But uh, I don't know, like, what company made it specifically, but um, uh, there was an, um, a guy named Charles Tate um, who was an entrepreneur and a kind of an early film advocate, and he wanted to create the longest film ever made, which turns out to be 70, 70 minutes in length. It's a feature length by our standards, a little bit shorter, I guess, than a, you know, a modern movie. But um, it was a hit. It was like a, like a full-length feature. I'm not sure how good it was. Um, but uh apparently it was lost because that's what happened it there was lost in a fire 
archivists have tried to find it. Um, there's like every couple of years, there's rumors that people find it. Um, they do have ten. There's like ten minutes of footage that there that has been or is in the process of being restored. Um, I think that's actually what's at the the Film Institute in Melbourne, um, which is really cool. If anyone ever goes there, you have to check it out. It was probably my highlight of visiting that city, which I admittedly didn't spend too much time in. But um, yeah, it's 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 a shame because it's basically this is like the first movie as we as modern people would understand it. And it doesn't exist. And uh, it's it's cool because it doesn't come from, like, Hollywood. It was also basically the first indie movie. So, um, yeah, if you find that in your attic, just, <laughs> just, just, just tell someone because um, there's a lot of people who would probably want it. So oh, uh, I'm handed over to you. Give me give me a film. We're just gonna sh- we're just gonna shoot. Just well, the the shoot. one the one I did a little bit of uh, researching on was uh, the example of the 1922 film Sherlock Holmes. Uh, that was for the longest of time uh, lost, and they they had no idea what was going on with it. Um, and then uh, recently it was actually that uh, a whole bunch of it. Some uh, some footage still missing, but almost all of it was uh, was found just recently. I'm trying to see if I could uh, find how, um, but what is just recently found as early as 2007, I want to say, where they found the oh, majority wow. of the film. So um, that was uh, pretty interesting. The one I, I I first found. Um. Do you? So was it like the first instance of? like Sherlock Holmes committed to film or was there an earlier one? There was, or? there was earlier ones. There was early ones as early as 1916. Um, that, that out there again, they were early ones that were, um, not the silent film. They weren't talkies as they, they call a lot of these films now that have the, the, um, uh, the words in there and stuff like that, of course. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was not a silent film. It was, uh, one of the ones that had, uh, had people talking and stuff like that but it was it was it it was just one of those interesting ones that it was one that was lost and then it was found again i i just found that very interesting yeah um are you familiar with the uh fritz long movie metropolis yes yes i did uh do a little bit of reading on that one as well yes that is probably one of my favorite movies of all time it is a silent film uh, it is an ex- ex- amazing example of sci-fi um, and very kind of like social commentary sci-fi from a very um, early period of our history. It's a, a really just beautiful film with a really engrossing plot. They've tried to remake it to no avail just because it's, you know, it's one of those things that it's like it'd be like remaking The Wizard of Oz, which these days probably is going to be more of an inevitability as we get less creative, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. Um, they did find the full copy of it because it was butchered when it came to America because, you know, us Americans um, were like, just don't have attention spans. Um, so they cut it down and it was thought lost. But they recently found it in Argentina, like I think in 2012. Some It was around that. And they've slowly begun to restore it. And I think you can get the completed version now or as close to complete as is in existence um, on DVD, which I have fully intended to do at some time period but speaking of a film around that time that was it's only 10 minutes long apparently um uh have you heard about save from the titanic i have not heard of that one no i didn't hear that one okay so save from the by from the titanic was uh filmed in 1912 which should be interesting 
considering the turnaround time after the disaster. Um, it was filmed by an actress who was a film actress whose name was Dorothy Gibson. Um, and it is important not just because of how quickly it came out, but uh, Gibson was one of the 28 people who was on the first lifeboat to be launched from the Titanic. Oh, wow. And it was rescued about five and a half, and I am reading this from Wikipedia, sue me, um, was rescued about five and a half hours after uh, leaving the ship. And the first thing she did when she got to the harbor uh, in New York City, where a lot of the survivors of the Titanic ended up, is she's like, I need to write about my experience. (laughs) And she played a fictionalized version of herself in the film. And the plot involves her just kind of recounting the film to her family. Um, She wore the same outfit that she had on the ship when she escaped. Um, And the filming took place in Jersey, um, where you're from, I believe. Yes. Uh, Yes. A good old Jersey. You're my neighbor, basically. (laughs) I'm in New York, so it's great. Um, I can actually see Jersey from my house. (laughs) Uh, I don't like it. Um, no, just kidding. Uh, and it was, yeah, it was filmed in Jersey and uh, on a broken down ship in the harbor. Uh, it was a huge hit at the time. She co-wrote it, which, you know, um, I don't know if you know this thing about, uh, women in history, but, um, not always given a fair, fair deal. Oh, I know. Yep. Crazy, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right? Yeah. So, um, but so she kind of like really took care of, you know, she had her own agency in doing all producing this. I kind of interpreted it as sort of like a way to kind of contextualize her trauma and sort of work through it. Cause like she did it like basically a few days later, she's like, I'm doing this, we're doing this. And, um, it's unfortunate for a couple of reasons <laughs> and it will keep getting more unfortunate as I explain. Um, all the prints were destroyed in the studio, um, that made it only two years later. And that was a Claire studio. Um, they are named after a pastry. Uh, only a few uh, prints and stills are known to survive. And it was kind of her, basically her last film because as she was doing it, she apparently suffered a mental breakdown and an existential crisis after completing it as you would because therapy didn't exist back then. And she literally went from a disaster and was like, let's just do this thing. So she went insane. Um, and apparently <laughs> It gets worse. She in, she never made a movie. She made one movie after that, I guess, but there's not much information about it. And then she went on to um, become a Nazi sympathizer, Ugh. was captured in Italy during the war for being anti-fascist. I'm not sure how about that about face happened. Escaped and then died in 1946 from a heart attack. So she led a very interesting life. And um, yeah, just a crazy story all around <laughs> and um that film only was destroyed only two years after it was after it was released it's it's ridiculous um it's it's one of those things like uh it's also funny to to read about the ones that were like people that were popular so their movie survived where other people that weren't that popular they're they're gone like i was reading that almost all of charlie chaplin's films still exist because people kept them you know they the the studios and everybody like that for his entire career almost i believe there's only like maybe three or four movies i don't know the exact Mm. number um but all the way going back down to 1916 almost all these films still exist whereas 
these films like you were just talking about with the the Titanic and and the the Kelly Gang and and all that sort of stuff they're, they're gone you know I mean like somebody might want find them one day up in an attic somewhere or whatever but for all intents and purposes they're just they're gone yeah and i am an optimist uh i'm a pragmatic optimist i guess so i do think that's possible because more and more crazy stuff gets signed all the time um i definitely think that there is a chance that this stuff could eventually um you know oh i agree wind up i agree with you i mean they're, they're still finding copies of the constitution on the back of paintings sometimes aren't they i mean <laughs> supposedly so yeah they, they could very well be that movie person that bought it they didn't know what they had and turn it into antiques roadshow and there it is <laughs> oh antiques roadshow um all right can you give me another film um moving along to a later time period i mean even after all of these silent films and talkies um uh, one of the ones i was reading about before i want to get into the big one i want to talk about today uh but one of the ones i i read about was ed wood he was a big uh, movie producer and uh, his uh, 1972 film called The Undergraduate, that was the one that says that it's been lost. Can you imagine 1972? I mean, I'm I'm old, but I'm not that old. But that's still <laughs> that's still not that long before I was born. And a movie that was made and must have cost a lot of money to make is gone. It's nobody's nobody knows where it is. Um, they're saying that uh, and the same thing I was reading about it says along with his 1970 film. Take it out in trade, which only exists in fragments, yep. and that's without sound. Um, then one of his movies, his 1971 film called Necromania, was believed lost <laughs> uh, until an edited version resurfaced at a yard sale in 1992. So that's exactly what we were just saying. So, I mean, then there's apparently I was also reading that uh, there was one of his pornographic films uh, called The Young Marrieds which was from 19, uh, it doesn't say what year in 1970, um, but that one was one that was thought to be lost as well. And that one was discovered as late as 2004. Um, <laughs> uh, I imagine quite a bit of those films probably had like a pornographic element to it. And just for the audience, like I'm not going to go too deep into this. Uh, I do try to keep it as like a relatively clean podcast which, if you know anything about me personally, is a hilarious <laughs> statement. But um, uh, so, like, maybe skip ahead. I don't really think we're gonna get too graphic here. Edward was—he's um, uh, portrayed in a, a, a Tim Burton film uh, by Johnny Depp. Uh, he's portrayed by Johnny Depp. Uh, it's black and white. He was kind of like the first schlocky cinema guy, who nevertheless kind of stumbled upon, you know, very weird milestones. He did a this is debatable, please call me out, a somewhat, or at least for the time, uh, sympathetic portrayal of, um, I want to say it was more kind of cross-dressing, and I guess there is elements of trans, I don't know if I am qualified to really say it was sort of portraying a transgender character, but um, in Glenn, not Glenda, but it was a kind of, for the time, a very, you know, sympathetic portrayal. And there is a lot to unpack from that that I think more uh, informed academics can do. But he was a guy who just did crazy stuff. And uh, a lot of these films, I did read the synopsis. I had to stop because it was just this combination of just, like, too absurd and, like, too just, <laughs> like, 
over sexualized but like he did some he did a lot of pornographic films when really there was no distinction between what's a porn film and what's just a film because like ratings were in a weird time it was the early 70s there's an hbo show that's coming out soon called the deuce that's uh sort of explores that mm-hmm. that period of very like sleazy cinema and like what it means there's so many conversations that i cannot have right now for multiple reasons about that whole genre but um yeah really crazy stuff uh that that ed wood guy um do you have anything more to add on that one no i'm sorry i kind of no, no, no that, that was good that was that was a little bit more than i had um i didn't have any more for that but you know what i'm i might move into my actual big one that i wanted to share because yes. it, it actually does kind of fit right into the ballpark of what uh what i talk about in my podcast and that is fan films um yes. one of the ones i found was a 1967 film and it was called batman fights dracula Oh my god! Now this was, I guess you could almost say. I've I've done a little bit of research on this. Like I said, it could be almost considered this could be one of the very first fan films ever made. And uh, basically, it was not uh, at all endorsed by uh, DC Comics, who owned Batman. <laughs> uh, Bram Stoker was gone by then, so I don't think anybody could fight them on the Dracula thing. Uh, but basically, when I did a little bit of research. Uh, what I did find was an article that was published in the Manila Chronicle Entertainment Guide because this was a Filipino film as well. That was the best part about it. Batman was a Filipino. That's uh, awesome. It was published on May 27, 65. So if I can, I'm just going to read you the synopsis that it says here. It says, Batman fights Dracula, which will be shown at the Delece Theatre starting today, June 3rd, is a Fidelis Productions initial film presentation in full Eastman colour directed by Lido D. M. Diaz. The story is about a mad scientist, Dr. Zorba, who is at his wit's end because of the interference of Batman in his smuggle, in his smuggle trials. It actually says smuggle tries. Together with his mad fanatic follower, Turco, they hatch a plan to bring Dracula back to life by means of electronic know-how, uh, which makes him different in that he can be controlled and is not afraid of the cross. In a hidden laboratory <laughs> in a cemetery mausoleum, they perpetuate their evil deed by getting fresh blood from their victims. Dracula comes to life. Marina Benzon, the daughter of, this, of another scientist, helps Batman solve the mystery of, this, of his powerful foe Dracula, which she when she is held captive so this was again a 1967 film made by these um by these filipino uh uh studio and there's images that are all on the website I, i i went down a little bit of a hole looking at these images there's like single frames it's not the film nobody has been able to find the film now there was a guy that uh, I did find his website, and if you want, I can provide it with you so that you can put on the show notes. But basically what he did was he went down this long sort of trek trying to find this film. And he put it, uh, he published it all on the web, of course. Um, it, it, it includes pictures of the actual theater uh, poster and stuff like that, so he could show it. Um, again, it's it just really, really interesting, especially because, like I said, the, they had no permission to, to use the name Dra- uh batman in the film at all and it looks like from the the images the batman that you see here is just hilarious to look at i mean you'll have to really take a look at that it's it's like absolutely amazing now i'm looking at it now surprisingly this wasn't the first 
or even the last Batman versus Dracula movie ever made as well. And that's uh, the one of the things that I find uh, the, the funniest out of this whole thing as well. So I um, just found that so interesting that this movie, this fan film, I guess you could call it, was was a big budget, well, for the time, Philippines, I guess, but a big budget movie. But again, lost. Nobody's been able to find it. Nobody knows where to, to watch it. There's always there's these little links all over the web where somebody says, oh, I have the full movie here. But it's not really the movie. It's just some, you know, something else. But uh, it's uh, it's lost for for the ages. Uh, that's in so interesting. Um, definitely, it probably has something to do with international copyright laws. Maybe not being a thing at the time. Um, I admittedly don't know a lot about uh, Filipino history, which is unfortunate um because from what i do know filipino history is just absolutely fascinating um and it's a fascinating country for just so many reasons um narratively oh you've probably got a a bunch of treasure stories about the philippines to 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 go on as well right oh oh, there are a few and um yeah there there is one in particular that um another podcast that i know you and i both really like kind of covered so i don't want to i don't really want to double dip too soon um but uh yeah there's a lot of interesting stuff um and cinematically out of the philippines too i know during exploitation the exploitation era of cinema uh if you've ever seen there's a great documentary called uh, machete maidens unleashed and it was about um just kind of exploitation cinema which is just very gratuitous um like you know women in the jungle and they eat snakes and when they're not eating snakes they're fighting each other and yeah. sometimes they make out um and it's like it's so interesting because they were taking these like a lot of american british women to um the philippines because of just like tax exemptions and just because you could do anything yeah. there which is very scary and i'm um, doing these crazy crazy films which were weirdly feminist for the time because like a lot of women kind of had a say in it there were it was women in traditional male roles it was very exploitive but um it's again it's one of those things that like academically is fascinating and i will not talk about it right now because i just do not have the the wherewithal but um yeah crazy crazy stuff um i i basically i'm gonna do two more and i'm trying to go through this Mm -hmm. because um i feel like i am just like talking too much but um uh have you heard about london after midnight no i did not see that one tell me about it okay well i will (laughs) um so it's a lon cheney film um, which uh, Lon Chaney for people out there you should all know but um, he was cinema's first boogeyman just a really before um, Willem Dafoe why did I go with Willem Dafoe before like the Willem Dafoe's and the Buseys not the best example um, uh, and like the Tony Todd's just like uh, people I would associate with like scary cinema even before Vincent Price even before like Bela Lugosi there was Lon Chaney who was in Phantom of the Opera like the famous one from the from uh the 20s I think it was 25 um 22 or 25 he was uh 
I think he was an originally an illusionist, maybe not, but he was um, a makeup artist and he had like a case of makeup and he just could turn himself into the most ghoulish figures that it's still scary and frightening to see them to this day. And one of his films was in 1927. It was called London After Midnight. It was an original story. Um, it was kind of the spooky, atmospheric a tale of hypnosis kind of dr caligari-esque he played this hypnotist figure who was weird and frightening and absurd and if you google this like there is a terrifying picture of him with like his just not like not someone you'd want you'd want to run into like in a back alley late at night just really just really creepy they had like live bats on the film because they thought it would be like more atmospheric and they had like thousands of bats and like and oh sorry a hundred bats um that's not a thousand that's significantly less um that they have in the apartment um but it's it's known um to it's it's famous for you know being a lost film that was also lost in like the studio fire at least mgm studio fire um but it was directed by todd browning who uh was the person who did mgm's dracula which is very famous and spawned like the you know that whole um monster film craze in mm-hmm. the in that period which i was about to say but now i'm not sure so i won't say it but you know what i'm talking about and most famously todd browning also produced a film called freaks which is a huge cult classic that shocked audiences at the time and was the basis for um american horror story uh freak show i almost forgot the name it is freak show um and it basically, at the time, it featured uh, actual people who were in sideshows, who were very of various deformity, um, and it was just completely written off as this like schlocky, horrifying, exploitative thing, and it ruined Todd Browning's career forever. So, um, yeah, that's that's that story. Um, but I want to ask if you have any more because I have like basically the whopper of lost films and it's very relevant and i'll tell you why in a second okay but do you have anything to chime in no no go ahead i'm, I'm waiting okay <sighs> so in honor of um the late great jerry lewis who lived a long fulfilled life and died i think it was not last week but the week before at the time of this recording um there's other films here i want to talk about like a cleopatra but for all intents and purposes i think this is the most interesting one have you heard of the day the clown cried no, I have not. Uh, it sounds interesting. Okay. Um, it is. It was filmed in 1972. I am going to read a lot of this from Wikipedia. Um, bear with me. It does, um, you know, it, I need to kind of go from directly. But essentially, in 1971, uh, Lewis, famous comedian, he is approached by a producer who wants to do um, a... What I guess you would describe as, and this is, I'm going to just give a trigger warning because this subject matter in its historical weight is not at all funny. I actually take it very serious. The So any kind of humor in this, I want to stress, should come from the absurdity of this film and not its like actual subject matter. But um, he wanted to produce a Holocaust comedy, let that sink in. Um, and Lewis was initially reluctant. He's like, what's it about? Um, and he eventually was convinced because he thought it would be important because there really wasn't a lot of depictions of the Holocaust at the time. Um, so he decided to do, uh, this film. 
um, that would, if you look at the interviews of when anytime anyone asked him about <laughs> about this film, Jerry Lewis would have a very strong reaction, to say the least. You would think that if this film was let out into the wild, watching it seven days later would cause a dead Japanese girl to crawl out of your TV and kill you. Um, it's, yeah. So I will read you the plot verbatim. And then I will read uh, what people have to say about this. Um, and also, like, I know you you have children, and it does kind of deal with some of, like, very tragic things that happen to children. So you will, please, Robert, interrupt me. If this is, like, too much, I will stop and, <laughs> and give you the subtext. Anyways, so the film follows. Uh, so Lewis plays a washed-up German circus clown named Helmut Dork. That is the name. During the beginning of World War II and the Holocaust, he is this famous performer. He once toured North America and Europe with the Ringling Brothers, but now he's past his prime. He receives a little respect. He's a drunk. He's a curmudgeon. He gets fired from the circus. Um, he, uh, you know, tries to get back in, but he's eventually fired. And in a drunken rant, he just disses the Gestapo and Adolf Hitler, which I guess you didn't do back then in Nazi Germany. I guess that was like frowned upon. Um, but uh, he's interrogated and he's sent to a Nazi camp for political prisoners where he remains for the next four years. Um, and uh, so he's there in a in this camp, which instead of, I guess, focusing on not dying, he tries to impress the other inmates by bragging about what a famous performer he once was. And he befriends a guy. Um, he gets a lot of the this camp receives a lot of Jewish prisoners, including several children. So the other prisoners try to get him to perform for them. And then they soon realize that he's not a very good clown at all. And there's a reason why he's here. Um, so he's beaten up. He is left in the um, the courtyard. And he sees a group of child, uh, Jewish children on the other side of the fence laughing at him for being beaten up because this is the kind of film that is. Um, and he's, you know, suddenly realizes he wants to entertain children again. And he finds a new lease on life. He tries to entertain them. And uh, it doesn't work out. He's being he gets eventually placed into solitary confinement. Um, but the Nazis decide to see a use for him. Um, and that use is that he he is assigned to help load Jewish children on trains leading out of the internment camp with the promise that he will eventually be released. So um, by a twist. This is the part where it just you might want to skip ahead <laughs> a minute just because remember this is supposed to be a comedy i guess there is well i'll let my words speak for themselves or wikipedia summary by a twist of fate he ends up accidentally accompanying the children on a boxcar train to auschwitz and he is eventually used in a pied piper fashion to help lead the jewish children to their deaths in the gas chamber knowing the fear the children will feel feel he begs to be allowed to spend the last few moments with them leading them to the showers, which is in quotations, he becomes increasingly dependent on a miracle, but there is none. He is so filled with remorse that he remains with them. As the children laugh at his antics, the doors close and the film ends. Wow. <sighs> I need a drink. <laughs> I think um, both so one. I think if you're a person with a soul and a semblance of history, which admittedly is kind of a topic of debate these days because this is the weird reality we live in. Um, but um, it was not well received. Critics did not know what to think about it. Um, 
to, to say the least. And um, it was basically Jerry Lewis was like, I cannot. He destroyed every copy. He kept one copy, which is in the vault to this day at his estate. He gets he got super irate when everyone asked about it. It was screened for a few comedians over the years and has become something of a legend to the point that people didn't, I think, didn't really think it existed. And one of those people with probably the greatest quote ever is um, Harry Shearer, who you may know from The Simpsons. And he said he saw uh, he was interviewed in 1992 um, in Spy Magazine, and he said, um, and I quote, with most of these kinds of things, you find that the anticipation or the concept is better than the thing itself. But seeing this film was really awe-inspiring in that you are rarely ever in the presence of a perfect object. This was a perfect object. Excuse me. This movie is so drastically wrong, its pathos and comedy are so wildly misplaced that you could not, in your fantasy of what it might be like, improve on what it really is. Oh my god, (laughs) that's all you can say. It was also, um, he also went on to say, if you flew, this film is like the following, if you flew down to Tijuana, and suddenly saw a painting on black velvet of Auschwitz, you would just think, my God, wait a minute. It's not funny, and it's not good, and somebody's trying too hard in the wrong direction to convey this strongly held feeling. So notorious, it, Lewis was just beside himself. It haunted him to his death. And of course, because this is Wikipedia, it, th- this was updated not but a few days ago. After his death, um, it was discovered. It is now... Um, being people have discovered it and they're trying to get it out there into the world oh, wow. but um in the case of pandora's box or um uh the mcrib there are just some things <laughs> that are not they're just not things that mankind was not meant to do we have gone too far i don't think it is meant for human eyes uh there was talk of trying to remake it with robin williams oh uh, remake sorry couldn't I mean, yep. Ugh. People, uh, I don't know because man just has this overwhelming ability, just feeling to stare into the abyss, to take the plunge. Um, it's something that haunts us. It's a death drive. I don't know what to say, but that is the day the clown cried. And before I forget, you mentioned something in the beginning that was really interesting, and I want to end on this because. Um, I, this is an Unsolved Mystery podcast, and this ties into um, – it's something I won't touch because it's not a lost treasure. There are greater podcasts out there than I that I really want to go into it. But um, there is uh, – this is a very reddity internet kind of mystery. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, the film that we all remember from our childhood that doesn't exist? Yes, it was something I found very interesting. I sort of read a little bit about it as well. It's the uh, Sinbad Shazam movie. The 1990s movie Shazam. Now, I found a couple of articles, uh, and there's lots of it online. Um, and basically, it says that there is there's this like group of people that, like inside of their heads, remember seeing this movie. Remember seeing this movie Shazam being played by Sinbad. Um, and they swear up and down uh, that they saw it. It's actually called The Mandela Effect. Um, oh my gosh <laughs> go on yeah sorry i just really like that's this. okay so um the the movies basically is that it was sinbad played the genie shazam um and then uh basically 
there's never been a film that they found where he did and Sinbad's actually even said at one point that you know I didn't actually do this film okay um, but there's still these people out there that sort of are like 100% saying this is real this this happened I've got it on VHS or something like that um, very very uh, interesting and it basically came to a head uh, I want to say a couple of years ago um, basically where was it I got the source here um, came to a head uh, on April Fool's Day a couple of years ago when Sinbad basically came out with a YouTube video basically saying he was wearing the costume everything like that and he basically came out and said you know what this movie was real I really did make this movie and that basically people lost their head over this thing they like they went crazy and then he came out and said no you know what it's a joke I never did this movie and um, basically it was one of the biggest pranksters for April's Fools that there's been in a long long time so uh, I, I think that this was I see even in my own head I kind of feel like I remember a movie I do too, and that's what's so creepy about this, and what's so, like, because when you said it, I was like, oh yeah, I remember seeing video advertisements of that on, like, VHS tapes and, like, mm-hmm. previews and whatnot when I was a kid. That is so insane. Um, Wait, go on. Sorry. No, 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 no. I was done. I was done. I was basically uh, just finishing up. But, like, if this movie doesn't exist, there has to be a movie out there that is the reason why everyone's remembering it. And I, there, I feel like there was something... That was this was similar. So the genie concept, young boy, um, young. It was like a white boy. The genie was portrayed by um, a black actor. I think a black comedian. Yep. I remember this so distinctly, and I want to say that there is a movie somewhat like that out there. But did the, isn't there like something that was there very was, similar? There was one people... called Kazam that starred uh, Shaquille O'Neal. I think so that. That's what the people be. are saying is the confusion, um, but the the Mandela effect. Uh, basically, what they say is the Mandela effect is a human tendency to create a shared incorrect memories that feel real. So I thought that was uh, a good way to sort of uh, end up with uh, what we're talking about here, because again, you, like you said it yourself, I feel like I remember seeing a VHS copy of this film. I I, I can't remember saying that I've ever seen the film. But maybe a trailer or the, the 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 jacket for the film or something. I don't know, but it just even in my head, I still think that I I feel like I really did see it. Um. So I am an optimist and I am a believer in in some things. Um. I definitely have a you know elements of faith about me and my psyche. Um. I am still a skeptic. I think my memory is from Kazam because there is. I feel like that could be a thing that people would easily misinterpret. Um, So just to extrapolate on this, the Mandela effect is also known as the Berenstain Bears theory or Berenstain Bears theory. And the reason why it's called the Berenstain Bears theory is that people in mass believe that Berenstain Bears, which is um, a famous children's series book about family bears, is spelled uh, S-T-E-I-N, like a a beer stein Mm -hmm. and not stain. Um, and that is just kind of widely misinterpreted, but people swear that there is, that that's how it was. Now, the crazy tinfoil hat Reddit-ish theory for why all of this is happening, and you can go to MelonMandelaEffect.com, there is a list, it is crazy. So the idea is that, um, something that happened 
in the last 10 or 20 years of uh, the universe existence, I guess, Earth, whatever you want to call it, something happened where all of us as a collective um, experienced a reality shift where we were, as a universe, shifted over into another universe and like the universe tried to course correct itself by implant like we have these memories of things from the previous universe that were slight differences so like um books that don't exist that do exist here or vice versa or like things being spelled differently or like the shazam thing um the mandela effect comes from the idea that people think that nelson mandela died in the 80s during a part during his protest of apartheid in prison and not uh 2012 i want to say it was recent um uh you know from natural causes um so the whole idea is that this we experience this whole collective reality shift um the reasons why that happened run the range of um they think it's because when they we turned on the the large hadron collider that it somehow split us into like a derivative universe but like didn't cause a black hole like some people were freaking out about um that's one theory i'm not sure if this is a theory that i like in a fever dream concocted for some bizarre story or this is discussed i might have read this this might be like a very meta example i feel like it's been brought up that just the act of 9-11 caused like this crazy oh this is so this is so like super conspiracy theory and i do not endorse this whatsoever that the act of 9-11 caused such a traumatic effect that it was a trauma not just to the individual because it was very traumatic but basically it to the trauma to the collective unconscious which um people believe that the collective unconscious does like you know alter the state of reality and that it caused such a trauma that it somehow split our universes and we went on this path um but there's all these crazy examples like people thinking new zealand is somewhere else there's a famous like 51 states it's it's such a rabbit hole and i'm already like this is not the mandela effect episode <laughs> it never will be there are other podcasts out there that i actively encourage to discuss it it is fascinating i encourage everyone to lose so much sleep over this because um it's a little fit creepy but mostly like one of those weird stories that ultimately you can um look into without so much existential dread <laughs> anyways i guess that do you have anything more you want to talk about lost film and there's a lot of film we didn't cover yeah, here and i have more examples. there's going to be plenty of exams we didn't cover uh everything from jackie chan's early first film um yes. so there's 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 a lot more that we could probably talk about in a little mini episode or even do another episode about later on so i mean I, I'm thinking of actually doing an episode on my own podcast about these sorts of things as well. Especially, I think, if I could find some more information on that Batman fights Dracula, I think uh, an episode on that for my uh, Fan Film Boys podcast, I think that might work well. Um, if you want to talk crossover, I am totally about that. Oh, absolutely. And this will not be the last. This will not be the last time you're on here because like you've done a lot of research for me. Um, you've been looking at the Facebook group, which people should check out. It's called the Reliquary, the Lost Treasure Podcast Group. Name still needs work, I know. Um, that's slowly but surely becoming a thing as word gets out there. Um, check out the uh, the Fan Film Boys podcast, of course, which is amazing. Um, uh, uh, I'm definitely shooting from the hip right now. Check us out on Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod. We've got a Gmail, Lost Treasure Pod at gmail.com. I'm always, I'm still looking for um, people's own Lost Treasure stories because that's stuff that is, doesn't exist on the internet yet. And I really want to share those um, and just kind of like have that 
oh, delicious, gooey center of a human interest story. Um, with respect, of course. Um, other than that, uh, I always, Robert, I always conclude with my kind of like Indiana Jones-esque The Adventure Continues kind of a preview. But I want to put you on the spot, and this is crazy, and I'm just doing this now. I kind of had an idea of what episode I wanted to do next. It was probably going to be something to do with pirates. But um, I feel like if this is a this kind of episode format is something I do every now and then. I want the guest to basically say, this is the treasure. I want lost treasure I want you to do next. So, Robert, I'm going to give you a couple seconds. Remember, I can edit this out. What what lost treasure do you want me to look into next? You know what? Anywhere. Um, I know I could be of help on this one. So uh, I am going to throw out there uh, King John's treasure that he lost in the wash. Wait, in the, as in like he put it in his pocket as, and it ran in the cycle? No, uh, it's uh, the wash is a giant bay in England. Oh. And basically what he was trying to do was he was marching his treasure or he was ma- marching his army plus his treasure across this big bay trying to beat the tide. Well, wait, okay, wait, wait, wait. And the tide I'm stopping came. you because we can't like... We can't like lose the meat. Oh yeah, but we, we can't. That's, yeah. That is a nice juicy little uh, uh, excerpt. So hopefully, uh, well, I guess I, I have to do this now. So I will. <laughs> um, so England. I guess we're going to England next time. Better pack your bags. Um, but other than that, any anything you want to plug? Plug. Go ahead. Plug. Plug away. Go ahead. Well, yeah. No. Um, my uh, podcast is the Fan Film Boys. Uh, you can be catch that on iTunes, Stitcher, and uh, Google Play. We've got a website: www.fanfilmboys.com. Uh, Gmail account, fanfilmboys at Gmail. We're on Twitter at fanfilmboyspod. Uh, We do post a lot of interesting fan films, uh, basically a lot of information, uh, just all that sort of stuff. Uh, I also host a monthly post, uh, sorry, I also host a monthly podcast called Movie Cocktail, where we basically put a group of four movies, similar movies up for a vote on Twitter. And if uh, whatever's voted for, we sit down and we watch and we come up with a cocktail uh, based on that film. So uh, the last movie we did was Howard the Duck. And I actually came up with this uh, cocktail called the Duck Pond. Um, basically had a lot of blue curacao in it. So that was uh, that's going to be coming out very soon. So that's a lot of fun too. Okay, you, sh- you can't see it obviously because it's um, not that kind of medium. My face right now is like like a child opening up a Christmas. That sounds fantastic. That is so awesome. I totally endorse that. So, um, yeah, everyone should check that out because that's that's great. Um, but, yeah, thank you for listening to uh, – I'm, I'm calling this segment It Belongs in a Museum because that's that's the joke, the Indiana Jones joke. Um, but, uh, yeah, there probably will be more like this in the future with other guests. I hope to get, like, other podcasts who kind of share this interest because it's fun to collaborate, guys, you know. But um, other than that, uh, I guess the adventure continues. Bye. Bye.